Hi, this is Michael Sadler from Saga, and you are listening to Talkin' Blues. It's funny because the last person I interviewed was also, um, who also began singing in, the, in church. At what point did you realize you loved to sing? Was it before that or was it during that? I don't know if I can say that uh, my love of singing uh, began during those years in the church choir. Uh, certainly the passion was born then, uh, even if it was subliminal or subconscious. But um, I mean, it's just something that I found myself doing. It's not uh, that I woke up one day and found out that there was a, a boys choir at, at St. Jude's Church and th- thinking, you know, thinking to myself, wow, that's for me. Um, <laughs> the love of singing came uh, eventually, uh, after uh, doing it for many years, I guess. Uh, certainly, there came a point when I realized that uh, I was most happy when I was singing, and uh, I could forget about everything um, and just do what I love to do. So, here I am today. So, did you ever have formal training, vocal training? Not apart from the choir, no. No. Uh, I mean, I can't read music, I can't... Uh, you know, write it certainly. Um, not formal, but I mean, it, it, I mean, a church choir is, is you know pretty formal in terms of um, shaping your voice and learning how to sing properly physically. You know, singing from your diaphragm and not from your throat and that kind of thing. And oohs and ahs and vowels and um, you know discovering which vowels are better to to hold for a long period of time. Like e is not a good one if you're going holding a, a long note going e. It doesn't sound as good as ah. <laughs> um, you know things of that nature, but not formal. No, not not in that sense. No, uh, no coaches or that kind of thing. The closest I came to a vocal coach or training, and it was more about a new approach to my singing, was when we worked on um, Worlds Apart with Rupert Hine. And um, you know, I was kind of set in my ways after you know, three albums or so. And um, what what he brought to to the table in terms of um, working with the band and and um, you know how to approach the, what he heard from the drums, the guitar, the keyboards, and that. When it came to the vocals, he said, "I remember he sat me down. He, he basically looked at me and said, all right, uh, Michael, you know we know you can sing. Um, what I want you to do now is forget everything you've learned.'" And I thought, um, <laughs> okay, uh, which was kind of a little off-putting at first. And I, I didn't really you know, grasp what he meant, but what he was driving at was you don't have to make it sound you know, church choir perfect all the time. Um, you sacrifice a bit of um, humanity or the, 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 that, that human element of singing and the soul, as it were, um, to get it right. So you're sacrificing um, you know, the, the, the human part of it for the technical, making sure that every note's exactly where it's supposed to be. And you lose out sometimes on the expression a little bit. So what he meant was, you know, make that secondary. You know, we know you can do that. Don't worry about that. Um, we're recording, and if we need to do it again, we'll do it again. But it's more important to get something out of the performance, something out of the personality on tape, not, you know, hitting the right... You want to still sing in tune, of course, but um, th- that that kind of changed my whole way of, of looking at vocals and not being so concerned with it being exactly right all the time. And uh, I actually started to listen to, to enjoy listening to myself back more <laughs> after that point. I thought, oh, I see what he means. Okay, you know, because I, I listened to those first few albums. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, 
There's a kid right out of a church. Well, not right out of a church choir, but yeah. But but I wonder if 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 your instrument is your voice. Hmm. So I I know that people might pick up the guitar and go, I don't like the way I play, or God, I I play terrible. Do you have? Do you see? Do you have those days where you think, oh, I'm singing horribly. I don't like my voice. There, they, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and there are albums that I can specifically point to and say, you know, I like the way that I sang on that album, or I don't like my, you know, my performance on that one. Although lots of other people do. It's right. like looking at pictures of yourself. You know, you look at ten pictures, and I say, well, I look terrible in those, and they, those <laughs> nine, and they all go, no, those are your best ones. So no, this, I look good here, and everybody goes, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> So yeah, but I but <clears throat> I can hear the difference, and, and when I and I remember how, for example, Behavior is my favorite um, album as a whole, um, and s certainly from a, a, a performance, a, a vocal performance point of view, because I remember being in a very good headspace at the time, um, and I can hear that, and I hear that in the performance, and it's reflected in the performance, and I listen to it back, and I feel good about it. There's very little about that album that I would. I always gauge it by what would I re-record when I listen to something now. I listen to some of the older material and I think oh, I'd like to re-sing that song because I've been singing it I, you know, maybe so many years on stage or singing it live and I sing it slightly differently now. Um, not necessarily the way it should have been the first time but it's, it's different now. Um, very little I would change on behavior so that's kind of a, a that's that's the measure really for me so wow. uh, you know I, I'm very I'm extremely self-critical. Um, behavior was kind of a, would it be correct to say it was a departure for the band's sound? Uh, uh, a little bit, um, a little bit. Uh, I don't know. We, we uh, in a good way, uh, for sure. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it was it was a little different, um, a little more um, human with the lyrics, more relationship, kind of sneaking its way into in, into the lyrics. And we always said up to, up to a certain point, we'll never use the word love in a song. <laughs> <clears throat> never actually say that word, you know. Um, we kind of started softening up a bit, but it was a little bit of a departure. But uh, but uh, not 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 you know like a, a sharp left or right turn for sure. It was it was more of a let's just go you know go off to the side for a little for just take this little side road just for a minute and see where it takes us and if we feel good about it. If it doesn't feel good, we'll get back on the next ramp and we'll get back on the super highway or whatever. But. Um, I, I'm I'm very very happy with where we took the the band at that time. Okay, so I have to ask. One of my mm. favorite songs is "What Do I Know," <laughs> and you don't play that live. Or I I never see a recording of it, a live recording of that song. Is there a reason for that? No, no, not really. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, we may have played. I know that I sang it live once. We we played uh, on one of the tours. We played in Oslo. And there was a band called Sonic Debris, and uh, they were our support that night. And they did a full-on, really heavy version of "What Do I Do?" What Do I Know? We didn't know that before we got there. <laughs> and 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 they said the singer came up to me and said, "Would you like to, you know, come up and and sing that song with us when we do it? Because we're going to do it in the set." And I thought, well, first of all, it's a ballsy move to do a, a, a cover <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of a really song is. by the the band that you're supporting. It's kind of like really, that's kind of risky. And I think he also wanted to know if we were in, if it was in the set. I'm sure that had he known we were going to play it, there's no way they would have included it in their set. Um, I said, no, we're not doing it. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And I got up and, and sang the tune with him. But I can't remember us ever doing it. We may have. But um, 
there's a lot of songs we've never played live, obviously, and you don't. <laughs> the funny thing about you know putting together a, a set list um, in the beginning, you you don't have the luxury of choice. You've got you know one album, and you've got eight songs on that album. It's pretty easy to put a set list together. Um, when you get when you get like ten, twelve, you know, thirteen albums into it, it's more about um, uh, what you're not going to play, you know, as opposed to uh, the ones that. that uh, it, 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 it's tricky, and you and you also don't know um, which ones are going to fly. I mean, sometimes you think to yourself, you know, hey guys, you know, in this new set list, uh, let's do this song. Um, because I have a feeling this is going to be a great live song. It just it, it just feels like that. Can you imagine playing this? And you, you rehearse it and you're thinking, yeah. And you get it sounding really, really good. And then you play it live and you do a great, you know, you lots of energy, a big performance. And you finish it. I won't say it's crickets, but it's like this lukewarm sound of, yeah, that was good. We're thinking, what? Really? And then a song like... Um, it was a classic song that, that we, we, we started, it was advised that we play it. And we thought, oh, that's not going to, you know, uh, <laughs> that's not going to do anything. That's like a, a snoozer. But then, well, okay, we'll try it. And it turned into one of the songs that people sing. It'll come to me uh, shortly, but um, it's the song that everybody sings along with. The first time we played it, we went, whoa, and, tr and thundering. It's just this nice little sort of pop rock-ish kind of song, a la saga. But a huge reaction over in, Ger in Germany on tour, and we thought, okay, sometimes you, you have no idea. You think something is going to bring the house down, it's like, okay, it just doesn't translate live. So, you know, maybe we, maybe we always thought that What Do I Know would be one of those songs, you know. But it was a hit for you, was it not? It got some it, it was heavy a, rotation. It got, it got some heavy rotation in, in, in some places more than others. It got some heavy rotation on the radio in, in Europe, yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's, I think it's one of those we thought, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a lightweight song. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows, though? I mean, like, let's put it this way. It, was in, it touched them enough, the, this other band, Sonic Debris, enough to cover it and do yeah. their own version of it. So maybe that was telling us something right there. So. Interesting. Um, yeah. If we go back, so at the age of 15, you decide to quit the choir. You pursue your football career. <laughs> <laughs> You've done your research. <laughs> um, but that doesn't pan out, and you decide to join a blues band. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the blues I, band. I decided to. Um, I don't know if it's a matter of deciding to or just... I you were living with? Of, well, well, I eventually I ended up doing that. I mean, it was, I, what happened, okay, let's, let's go back to the football. I was in high school, first year of high school, grade nine, and um, I went out for the football team. And um, I believe it was like a, a wide receiver. And uh, this, the quarterback at the time, and I had that, you know, kind of a good thing going where we kind of could read each other and that. So it was, it felt really good. And I thought, you know, we did the, the tryouts and I thought, this is this going to be cool and I made the team that day and I went home and put my feet up and you know, normal routine my mom made me a sandwich and um, I went to get up and I couldn't straighten my leg I'm sorry I couldn't bend my leg I thought wow that's strange I hadn't done anything to it long story short I ended up with what's called Osgood Slattish disease and it's very common in young boys around 13 14 years old and it's uh, it's not a you know you haven't broken anything you haven't torn anything uh, it's just behind the kneecap and the only cure for it was to wear a cast, full-length cast from hip to ankle for six weeks. Wow. So, goodbye football, hello rock and roll. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, maybe it was a blessing in disguise. I don't know what kind of football player I would have ended up being. But 
Um, at the time, you know, in like the, the clothing shops uh, in the, the, the town I grew up in in Oakville, um, they would quite often uh, have an 8 by 10 of a local band. Uh, there weren't many of them, but uh, would create, you know, in the either in the store window or whatever. Uh, and you're thinking, you know, oh, and I'd seen this one, uh, and um, someone said they were looking for a for a singer. Oh, I'll remind you, uh, or something some people don't know. Um, and I went out to meet them. Prior to that, prior to that, I'll continue with that in a second. But prior to that, I had found out there was a band called the Kings, and they were looking for a singer. And I tried out for the Kings. This is the Kings that we would know. Switching to Glide. Yeah, yeah. I went out to try out for the band. Guess what? I didn't get the gig. And okay, I, how <laughs> did you feel when that happened? Tell me what that was like for you. I, I, that's that's a, such a long time ago, man, and it, and it happened so quickly, and it's it just it's very cloudy. I know that I did um, uh, try out. I was asked to try out, and it was like, uh, thanks very much, but. Mm. Um, I was probably, I wouldn't say devastated. I mean, its I think it was my first audition. Um, I'd been in a high school band and played the parish hall and that kind of thing. But this was a professional band. You know, they actually made money um, playing. Um, I was probably disappointed, but I don't think it, you know, shattered my world. Uh, I had, I wasn't that, like, dead set on being in a band per se at that point. So it was like, eh. So um, then I saw this other one and uh, met the guys. Found out they needed a singer. Uh, it was just a three-piece band. Um, a blue, uh, it was a blues band, out-and-out -out blues band. It was uh, guitar, bass, and drums. And the bass player had the the harmonica around the neck. The, uh, I can't remember what the name is. You put the harmonica rack. on, you're playing bass. Yeah, yeah. There you go, the harmonica rack around the neck. Um, yeah, it was just, and it was authentic blues. I mean, it's authentic Chicago blues. And, and I'm, here's this young, <laughs> little white kid in Oakville, right out of the choir singing Chicago blues. <laughs> you don't love me, baby. You don't love me. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'd love to hear some early recordings because it must have sounded so straight, you know. But um, yeah, and, and it was just, uh, it was just straight up blues. I don't remember us ever playing a gig as a blues band, but we rehearsed like crazy. Was it the same band that kind of transformed into more of a jazz band that transformed? This is the into one, and it was just, yeah, it was just natural progression, it seemed like, because um, uh, what, what ended up happening, obviously, it was out of the choir at the time. Um, I left school, uh, moved out from, from my mom's house, uh, and moved in with these guys. Um, before I moved in with them, though, I was, I was working, the other three weren't, but whatever. These are the older guys. They were like in their twenties, so they, I was just so they didn't have pop, to work. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. They were they were the older pros, you know. Um, and uh, I would go over every night. We'd we'd rehearse and that. And then one day I went over for rehearsal and I walked downstairs in the basement where all the gear was, and uh, there was a piano sitting there. And uh, I said, "Whoa!" I said, uh, "What's that?" And the piano. Yeah, very funny. I said, "Why do we have a piano in the you know in the rehearsal room?" Well, we had a meeting. Oh, okay. Um, and we decided that we need to have piano. It'd be a nice addition to the to the music. We can play more, you know, different kinds of tunes if we get some keyboards going. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Uh, we were, so we're getting a piano player. I said, no. I said, well, who's going to play the piano? He said, you are. And I said, oh, uh, are you aware of the fact that I have no idea how to play piano? They said, ah, you'll learn. I went, really? <laughs> you're just, you're just going to put this thing in front of me? <laughs> <laughs> there might be a learning curve involved with this kid, but, you know, we know you can do it. And it was literally, you know, looking at the, the keyboard and 
hitting three notes and going oh that sounds happy that must be a major chord and then you know slightly changing one note that sounds sad that must be what they call a minor chord and then discovered the blues chord which is the seventh the major seventh and and took it from there and it's just you know I I can't like I said I can't read I know enough of where to put my hands and what's going to happen when I put my hands there and I can create chords can't necessarily tell you what each of them are but I can tell you it's based around a G because my left hand's playing a G so it must be anyway um, and one thing led to another we um, we decided to add some sax um, because we started hearing this, this kind of fusion-y stuff going on and it was like blues combined with jazz so you got this jazz fusion thing with the blues and we're starting to do that and we've got a sax player we did play a couple of gigs that way um, but the, the turning point, uh, what really changed everything for me, uh, for the band at the time, but for me, uh, was when the drummer came back from the big city. He went into Toronto to, because uh, one of the, it was uh, maybe A&A's or Sam's at the time, uh, obviously, uh, I guess in their import section. And he came home uh, with this album. And I was the only one home at the time. It was the middle of the afternoon. And Jerry, the drummer, came in. He said, Michael, I want you to hear this. He said, Fair enough. And put on side one, listened to it all the way through. Uh, my jaw was kind of on the ground, didn't say a word. He turned it over and played side two. And I remember it finishing and just kind of looking at him going, I have no idea what kind of music that is or what it's called, but whatever that is, I need to start playing music like that now. We need to play music like that. Whatever that is, we got to start doing it. And it turned out it was uh, Three Friends by Gentle Giant. And uh, this was like Prague. It was like, hello. Um, and it all made sense when I found out that the origins of Gentle Giant was a band called Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. So it, it kind of, it wasn't a big band, but it was that kind of fusion jazzy, bluesy background added with a rock element and sort of a bit of Celt here and there. But this mishmash of styles that just blended perfectly piqued my interest so much. I just went, that's it. You know, if you want to call it, if that's what Prague is, we're doing Prague now. I got to play progressive rock. So you had to learn how to play keyboards in progressive rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same thing, hunt and pack. You know, it's like <laughs> learning how to type. You know, same thing. <laughs> if it sounds good, if it sounds good, just remember muscle memory that my hand went there at that point in the song and it sounds great. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird because I don't, I'm, I find it interesting that around that time, there was a lot of Canadian bands that were headed towards progressive rock yes um, yeah and not yes. as much in the states i mean progressive rock seems very much a european thing and a british it, thing right very much so very much so and it, and it took off um uh, i don't want to say there's a bigger community a prog community in canada than america it's just i mean geographically size wise there, there could be the same numbers but it just seemed you're right that that prog uh, maybe because of the british um influence in in canada um that it took off, especially in Quebec, the province of Quebec, they love their Prague, they still do. It's it's a, a real hotbed for Prague. Um, I mean, Supertramp almost broke in, in Quebec uh, for the North American market. Um, Genesis, early Genesis with uh, Gabriel. I remember listening to um, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway in Quebec City in a, the Jean Talon Hotel, and someone had a, rec- a uh, turntable in the room and someone brought over the co- the day it had been released and again it's like listening to three friends it was like whoa you know but 
Yeah, uh, Canada, especially Ontario and, and, and Quebec, Quebec specifically, always been good for, uh, for prog bands from the very, 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 very beginning. I know you can't test upon it, but what was it about that album that just made you think, this is the way I want to go? Three Friends? Yeah. Um, the, the, the approach to everything, you know? Um, I guess unconventional is, is one word that, that springs to mind because you know, there's so many tried and true ways of, of approaching music. Um, you know, and you can you can push the envelope now and again and that, but it just seemed like they could push the envelope on every aspect of of approaching, I guess, rock music. Although it was so much more than just rock, um, certainly rock based, but the Celtic thing, the the counterpoint, the vocals, the fact that everybody played everything. If you ever saw them live, it was crazy to watch that they just changed instruments and and equally proficient on on each one of them. But um, it, it it was that that. It was almost experimental, but organized experimental. It, it 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 had a beginning and an end, and it, unlike a lot of the 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 sort of more, I want to use the word meandering prog, and I don't mean that in a, de a derogatory right. uh, way, but you know the, the longer musical passages, like a yes, which is beautiful, close to the edge, and things of that nature. You know, it just moves me when I listen to an album like that. These were more. The giant was more, although incredibly complex. Um, they were. It was more about the songs. Like there was a beginning and an end, and a you know a little middle section here and there, and then a really cool musical break. But they were songs, and and, and I don't think they ever did any songs that were. Maybe, if they did a long song, it was maybe six minutes or, or seven minutes. But they, it was not that kind of prog. It was. Um, I don't know. It was accessible, but it wasn't accessible because it was so experimental. Even for a lot of uh, prog people listening to Giant, they're like, whoa, that's <laughs> a bit much for me, you know, because they would really go left field on some of the tracks. But uh, yeah, it was just, it sounded like, it sounded like they were having fun and they were being adventurous and anything, it wasn't anything goes in the sense that we can just do anything we want. No, it was within their if they had a structure, their internal structure of what the band was about and what the, the band had a feeling of, of their identity. But within that structure, as it were, they were allowed, they were capable of doing anything and trying anything. And, and you could feel that. But again, it just sounded like they were having so much fun on the adventure they were on. It was just, it just got me. So do you, did that band ever go that, down that route to becoming a prog rock band? And if they did, how did your singing how was your singing affected by that style of music? Well, the, the fresh out of the choir really suited. The, the, I mean, we weren't going full on Gentle Giant. I mean, style. Um, <clears throat> we were more. Well, the Gentle Giant thing opened me into that world, the, the whole prog thing. And, and at that time, there's a lot of the, the longer passage kind of musical uh, bands uh, or prog bands. Um, the long drawn out pieces, the very epic sounding things and a little more pomp and all of that. Um, so I think it was the day that we introduced a Mellotron into the band. We were one of the first bands in uh, probably North America, but I know in, in Canada, one of the first to get one. We drove one night overnight, uh, the four of us jumped in the car from Oakville to a store in, I believe, New Jersey. We found out that they were only, uh, at that time, they were the only distributor for Mellotron, as far as we knew and the closest for sure 
and we said we've got to because we knew all about the Mellotron from the Moody Blues and and because they have, I believe they introduced it on a certainly on a, on a mass scale to, for the public, um, and we found out that that you could actually get your hands on one. And the only place, <clears throat> like I say, was this music store in Jersey. We drove overnight just to have a look at this Mellotron and see what it was all about. We were there, you know, first thing in the morning when the store opened. The guy's like, whoa, you drove down to see that? Okay. Um, and that was it. It was like, we, we have to have one of these. It, it's just the way it is. And as soon as you, <laughs> as soon as you put your hands on a Mellotron, you have to write those kind of pieces. You have to. It's just as soon as, soon as you put your hands on, you hear a combination of, you know, violins and and and, and horns. It's just like oh, you know, you, you it just cries epic. It just you know you've got to have these sweeping passages, and uh, consequently, I think we played um, four shows when we kind of went full prog. Uh, we did four shows in our history, and one we played three songs in that set. Uh, one piece was literally 24 minutes. I think problem one was 16 or 17 minutes, and the other one, you know, similar. But yeah, you know, we we had <laughs> it was over the top. Um, but we we went full full prog. Like I say, we had <clears throat> a total of, of four gigs. So. That was it. That's when that that's when the when the real prog uh, was started. And then at one point or another, you decided that maybe the music industry wasn't your thing. And you, you left it. This was this is years after, um, like I say, that 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 band that you know we got the Mellotron, we went you know four gigs, we, <laughs> our massive tour. Uh, it wasn't long after that 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 we parted ways, and I um, I got a call. The, the connection with Jim Crichton actually started with this band. One of the shows we did do was, I believe, it was London, Ontario, uh, and I think it was the University, if I'm not mistaken. Is it Western? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Mellotron, <laughs> you ask anyone who's ever had one, it's not a tour instrument. It, it, it's not roadworthy because it's this box um, full of tape. And each, you know, each key has a piece of tape assigned to it. And on the tape is divided into three, you know, flutes and the violins and cellos. And you could toggle between the two and blend those two with A and B or B and C. Um, but, but suffice to say, every single note had a piece of tape and and a big wheel going with the uh, it's just spinning constantly right and by hitting the note you engage the tape head so it would start the the but it had a life i mean the beginning of the tape to the end of the tape so if you held the note too long it would just go away <laughs> until you let go and it would fly back and start again pretty quick but you had to make sure that you didn't you know so it had its parameters so it it, it kind of dictated some of the musical passages you could play as well, because you had to be aware of that. But as far as a road instrument goes, forget it. You know, a couple of up, upside down, if you put it up the wrong way or that, you open it up, the tapes are everywhere. Ooh. And you've got to, you know, one by one, it, depending on how many went off their school or whatever, you've got to put them, line them all back up again. So, yeah. Um, we ended up with one that didn't make the journey to London very well at all. And it was either not working or it would have taken so long to, to get it ready for the show. There was just no time. Um, so we were faced with, you know, either, you know, playing these epic songs without one. And I'm telling you right now, a 24 minute piece of music, a sweeping piece of music without that, you know, the grandeur of the Mellotron isn't quite the same. So um, somewhat, I don't know how we got the connection, but we found out that uh, the band that, that uh, Jim was in, um, had a Mellotron and 
I don't know how the connection happened. We made the call, and Todd Booth, the keyboard player, and uh, the band was called Truck. And um, for the most part, a, a cover band, a really good one, good material, a different kind of uh, cover band. Um, they got in touch with Todd and Jim. They drove all the way out to London with the Mellotron. We borrowed theirs for the show. Wow. And that's when I first met Jim and, and Todd. Um, so once uh, we went our separate ways as that prog band, Jim called me one day, and um, I found out that, that uh, I believe his name was Mike Langford, he was the singer at the time, and he left Truck, so th they needed a singer pretty quick, and Jim had, you know, was familiar with me, uh, had heard me that night, and asked if I was interested, and I ended up joining the band, and I was in, in Truck for a few years with, uh, with Jim and Todd and Neil Chapman, uh, Marty Moran. Oh. Um, yeah. At this, yeah. at this point, are you thinking this is what I want to do for my? Yeah, this is starting to feel real. Yeah, this is starting to and and uh, although it wasn't, they weren't doing like the prog prog stuff. Their choice of material was cool. It wasn't your standard cover band stuff. Um, you know, some Steely Dan things like that. So I was going, this this is this is cool. This is uh, I think this is going to you know this is it. This is the kind of thing, or I mean at least musically in terms of career. Uh, I'm going to do this, you know, I, I'm going to make money this way, hopefully, but I mean, this is my chosen profession. Um, where it leads to, we'll find out, but, but that's when it really felt, like I said, that's when it felt real. Um, yeah, and then um, uh, after a few years, there was, uh, I, I, mean, I can't remember the tenure, maybe it was only a year and a half, I'm not sure, it felt longer, obviously. Um, it was all new, you're driving places, you're actually doing gigs and this kind of thing. And then, uh, through one thing or another, uh, a management thing or a record or whatever, the business side of things, something sour happened. I, I don't remember specifically. I don't even want to think about what it could be. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But it made me go, oh, you know, and, and the band kind of like, eh, and, and you know, the band's kind of going to break up and go, yeah, oh, this isn't going, yeah. Nah, nah, nah and left a real bitter taste in my mouth. I got out of the business for a while. Uh, the band broke up. I didn't want to do it anymore. It, 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 it affected me that much. I thought, you know, it's, for me, it's all about the music. Yeah, there's got to be business attached to it, and you've got to keep your head straight, and, and, and you find that out many years later about the, the mistakes you, you know, things you could and couldn't have done differently on a business point of view, so you have to pay attention to that. But at the time, uh, it's more about the music and it's more about the passion and that and it really affected me emotionally. I was really hurt and I said I don't want to do this you know it really offended me that that the business side of things would get in the way of that and and I took it I guess I took it personally and just walked away from it and I so was doing singing just, no know, longer a thing then when you walked at away, that moment at, when I walked away there was nothing no nothing musically singing or otherwise and I I worked at a graphic arts company for a while uh, doing paste up, uh, you know, on the table. Uh, I ended up being a salesman for the company. I had the company car. I got the briefcase. I got the three-piece suit, and I'm doing that, and you know, going out and getting accounts and that kind of thing. And I guess about a year had went by, a year and a half maybe. And and uh, Jim called me one night. And, well, actually, what happened was I came home. I looked at myself in the mirror. It's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> this guy in a suit with a briefcase. I'm like, whoa. And that day or the next day, Jim called and said that he had written a few uh, original songs. And uh, <clears throat> we'd like to come over and have some supper. And then after supper, you know, just put a vocal on it for me, just, you know, just for fun. I want to hear what it sounds like, not me singing it out. You know. I said, sure. And now I went over for supper and we had a nice supper. And 
uh, my wife and, and his wife were kind of hanging out in the other room. We went into where the, the gear was and fired up the reel-to-reel -reel tape machine and uh, you know, we were doing percussion on, on cardboard boxes and that kind of thing. And, um, I sang on these, these four demos and um, I went home and it was a great evening. I went to work the next day with my three-piece suit and my briefcase and my company car. Came home that night, looked in the mirror, I thought, who? I didn't recognize myself because I just got a taste of what it is. And, and not only was I singing and doing music, this was original, right? So I was like, oh. So something stayed with me from the night before. So when I looked at myself in the mirror the next day, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's you. This isn't you. That's you. And I quit my job immediately. I called Jim. I said, um, so you, um, you know, you, you've written some songs. Are you planning to, do you want to? He says, well, I was kind of thinking, I said, if you want to go for this, I'm in. Let's, let's do this. I mean, let's, let's start this and let's put the personnel together and, and let's, let's make it happen. And Pockets was born then. So. Did you know what that let's do this meant? I mean, was it let's do this, let's get a record contract, let's do no, it? No, 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 not, not, nothing that specific, but let's do this in terms of you're, you're, you have a passion to write some original material. It's piqued my interest. I've never tried writing original material, although I know it's in me. I was I, I I knew that it was without saying it out loud, um, and it intrigued me to be able to come come up with something of your own, and he had the passion and I had the passion. I could feel. I said, let's do this. Let's make whatever this is. Let's take this you know, on this logical journey, uh, as far as it goes or as short as it is. But but let's let's do. Like, in other words, let's put all our energy into this right now, and that's why I, you know I quit the job and just said you know let's let's, let's get on with it. Yeah. That's a pretty ballsy move. It was, but I mean, I believed, and it was like, let's, you know, he, we just looked at each other and said, this feels right. So you hadn't sang, really, for a long time. When he asked you to sing, maybe you might have sang in the car, but... <laughs> Not really. Now, I, it's funny, because I don't listen to music, per se, at home. I don't sing in the shower. I don't, uh, you know, I don't walk around going, la, 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 la. I, I, I don't warm up before shows. I don't... <laughs> really? I just, never. Okay, never. so how much has your voice changed over the last 40 years? Um, okay, you asked me earlier about believe or not believing the hype, but but when you know you you're, you're a good singer, or are you a good singer? You know, honesty, and I've heard it enough now, and I can hear it myself. But apparently, it's gotten stronger in the last ten, um, even even the last five, and it's like a, like a freak of nature kind of thing. People look at me, like, what do you mean you don't worry? How can you possibly? You sound better now than you did thirty years ago. I don't know. Um, <laughs> And you can sing I, I those songs in the same range. Yes, very much so. Yeah. That's crazy. And yeah, I know, and it, it freaks me out too. But um, I don't know. I think it, it, perhaps I don't want to say that it was solely this, but I I, I stopped drinking about uh, but almost twenty years ago, and it seemed to strengthen after that point. Um, Which would make sense. Maybe it, it would. It would. That's why. Well, that's why I credit uh, at least some of it to that. But uh, yeah, it's just. I don't know. It, it's got. I find it easier to sing. Um, I have a lot of fun when I do sing now. And and and, and the other thing, the other thing that that uh, was kind of a benchmark for me in terms of believing that that I you know that, that I could consider myself a good singer because other people did was when um, <clears throat> when others were coming to me uh, for outside projects. The day that that started, I think you know in the back of your mind you're thinking, wow. 
you know, it's not all about singing your material because you're in there. You're lodged in there. You are the singer of this band and it's been together this many years and that. And so you must be a good singer or they would have kicked you out. Or the, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Something. Um, but you're, you're there. Um, as soon as outside projects start showing up, like, then you think to yourself, wow, that person wants me specifically, the sound of my voice, on their material and so on. And then it just grew from there. And I'm thinking, well, that's validation right there. Maybe I should start believing it because if other people, you know, uh, like it enough to, to specifically ask for my input on their music, that's a great compliment. So. Especially when it's somebody like Justin Hayward. Oh. You know, right. I, I so you were I just had mentioning the, the Mellotron. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I had the privilege of of doing an album um, some years ago in in Germany. Um, Tom Schmidt Seinen, who who left us last year, uh, may he rest in peace. Tremendous friend and and amazing producer. He ended up uh, actually um, producing my my solo album, Clear. I'll say first one because the second one's coming. But yeah, he. Uh, he called me when I was living in Germany for a spell, and uh, this is before I'd met him. It's the first thing I did with him, and he explained that he had he had actually been looking for me and, and uh, for some time, and, and just finally got the connection. But he was working on an album of Moody Blues songs uh, with uh, a uh, I think the Prague Philharmonic, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, it's called the Frankfurt Rock Orchestra, and I think a lot of the players are from Prague. Um, <clears throat> and he put it together with this orchestra and some uh, you know, obviously electric uh, instruments uh, and guest singers. And I, I'm sorry, one half of it was sung by Justin and the other songs uh, were supposed to be, his idea was for me to sing the other, say six songs, whatever. Um, he couldn't get in touch with me. He was under a time crunch and had someone else do two of the tracks and then finally got in touch with me. He said, well, I've got four tracks left. I really wanted you to do them. Are you available? I said immediately, yes, of course I am. Um, and I was fortunate enough to do uh, four tracks on that one, and one of them being um, Nights in White Satin, which was like, you know, uh, and, and what was great about working on that was not only being, you know, completely familiar with the material and, and, the, and the singing style, um, but singing style and range was perfect for my voice and perfect for my range. And it, it turned out that, that Justin Hayward and I had the same, what they call sweet spot. There's a range within an octave of like four or five or six notes that are going to be right in there. That, that's where your voice sounds most comfortable. You can sing other, you know, up and down, above and below, uh, below that. But that's where it sounds really good, you know, and, and, and where your, your strongest area is. And it was very similar. So when it came to sing that material, it was not a chore at all. I mean, I didn't have to find my voice. Um, in fact, we, <laughs> we we started with that song. I said, he said, which one do you want to start with? I said, might as well tackle Nice One Satin. And uh, he said, sure. So he brought up the track. Like I say, I was completely familiar with it. And uh, track started. I started singing where you're supposed to start singing. Finished when I was supposed to finish. And he tracks up the track. And there was a little <laughs> there was a moment of silence. He looked, looking at me through the glass. And he said, um, is there some place you need to be? I said, why? <laughs> he said, are you in a hurry? I said, no. I said, why? He says, well, I mean, essentially, unless you feel like you, I, that, that one's done. <laughs> and I was, I'm so, so unfamiliar with the concept of that because, you know, tr doing things over and over in the studio to get it right and get it right. I mean, we, I mean, Saga in the studio, especially in the early days, sticklers for, you know, 
you know, oh, you got to do that again. So, no, it's not quite, oh, it's not quite in the pocket. So when it came to, <laughs> time to do a vocal, and here's this guy going, okay, we're done with that one. One take through, I'm thinking, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. So I went in to listen to it, just to be sure, because it's up to me. And he played it back and went, oh, okay. I was completely happy with it. It sounded great. And it sounded like I'd been singing it for 30 years. So, yeah, but um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was the start of, of um, you know, working on other projects. And the beauty of doing other projects is you get to sing outside of your comfort zone sometimes. And you get to sing a slightly different style and a different approach. And, and you're taking direction. Um, you try and bring, you have to remember that they've hired you, first of all, they've hired you because of the sound of your voice and the way you approach singing and the way you approach the song. But, you, but what's fun about it is taking the input. You do what you normally do. Um, what I'll do is get a song uh, sent to me to see if I'm interested. That's the first part, you know, would you be interested in doing my stuff? I, of course, I'd be interested to hear it first because, um, you, know, I, you know, I can sing any song you put in front of me, but will it suit my voice? Probably not. Um, but let's find out. You send me the track, I'll put a little, I'll, first of all, I'll say if I like the track, and if, if I think I can bring something to it, great. And if, if I think, uh, you know, you're gonna benefit by using my voice and I'm gonna enjoy doing it, because if I'm not gonna enjoy doing it, and it's just gonna be for the money, I'm not gonna perform the way I would if I was really into doing the song. And at that point, uh, we agree on it. I'll do a quick demo of, of what he had in mind, and then he'll he'll say, "Oh, that's you know, it's exactly what I was looking for. You can do more of that or less of that, or uh, try something completely different right here. I just want to hear what it sounds like." And then, no, that doesn't work. Do, do it the way I had originally. That's fine, but it's it, it's great to to work outside of your normal uh, parameters and and just it it, it challenges you, and if you get to find out what you can and can't do. So. Then, then there are times when somebody is recording an Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, album and just says can you help us that okay again you can't you can't pick and choose huh? um <laughs> if you had told me you know say 10 years prior to that that i'd be working on an ozzy osborne album as a vocalist i would have told you, you were crazy <laughs> but we were in the same complex in uh, in van nuys where jim's studio was right next to keith olsen's studio who he worked on uh, wildest dreams with him and uh we're sitting outside taking a break one afternoon and keith came over he goes he looked really like harangued. He's like, "Oh man!" <laughs> He's like, "What is it, Keith? What is it now, Keith?" He says, "Michael, you got to help me out, man." I said, "What is it?" He said, "I've been handed um, the the new Ozzy Osbourne record, No Rest for the Wicked." He said, "It's all done, except I got to replace the backing vocals." I said, "Oh yeah?" He said, "It was done by uh, I'm going to get the names wrong. It was Mark Bowman, Howard Kale, and Mark Bowman, or the or I sometimes get the." the it's the two guys from the Turtles, right. uh, the two singers from the Turtles had done the background vocals. And while they sounded okay, his description was that they were too right, almost a little sweet, because they're great singers, but they approached it like a Turtles song in terms of how they would do background vocals. You can't do that on top of Ozzy, uh, <laughs> screaming, you know, singing the way he's, it just, it was inappropriate. Like I say, sounded fine, but, you know, he said, I got to replace them all. I said, what are you talking about? He says, probably, you know, of the songs that, that I need vocals on, I'm looking at like 16 tracks of, you know, where you do like four tracks of one note, four tracks of another, like three or four part harmony on about nine songs or eight songs. I said, sure. I said, how long? He says, well, you know, I think he came to me, A, because I was right next door and I was right there <laughs> and he'd worked with me. 
so he knows that uh, when it comes to doing what I sometimes call production line vocals, meaning you don't have to think about it. Uh, if you're just doing backgrounds for someone and the part is just, it's like playing a keyboard uh, pad, you know, right. you're just going, ah, ah, or just following the vocal exactly, you're paralleling it, and it's two or three parts, you're just going to sing the same thing over and over. So that's why I call it kind of production line vocals. And he knows I'm very good at locking into that. So if I do one, he just rolls the, the song back and switches tracks and boom, boom, boom. I can do four tracks really quickly and match myself. And he knew that I could do that. So he knew that he could get it done fairly quickly. He said, I'll offer you such and such for it. And I said, okay, when do we start? Um, but that was, yeah. And, and I mean, I really enjoyed doing it. I listened back to it and it's like, wow, it, it, you know, it brought a nice, <laughs> nice uh, element to the, to the vocals, to the songs. But I didn't get credit for it. Oh. I was so sad. I was so sad. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, people know. But if you go to the track listing and all the credits, not a mention. And I think it was only because this is such an 11th hour thing that everything was done, including graphics and, and everything. They were just mm -hmm. ready, getting ready to get the master, press it and put it into package. And that's my, I'm hoping that that's the, <clears throat> the only reason, <clears throat> but that would make sense. I mean, if, he, if he's coming to me at that 11th hour to do all those vocals, I got to assume the machine's ready to roll, so. So I have to ask about Saga. So you, you, you get together and decide, let's do this. Yeah. And how long did it take I presume it took a while, but till you thought, my God, we made the right choice. We made the right decision. It was worth the pursuit. It was worth giving up my three-piece suit and my um, pro Probably the, the first time we got paid for a club gig. I mean, <laughs> as soon as you start making money from it, then, 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 then you become a professional. Up until then, you're just rehearsing. I mean, <laughs> you're just... Um, yeah, I mean, how do you know it's real? It's real when you start making a living from, from doing it, I guess, uh, is the, the best way to look at it. So, and things happen you know, pretty quickly, right? Like, they, mean, they, they did in terms of the big picture. I mean, especially, you know, apart from cookie-cutter pop music that comes out of Disney, um, you know, especially for rock bands now, it's really tough. I mean, it, 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 the, well, the, the horizon out there, the, the landscape is not it's not conducive to starting a new just you know normal rock band five guys right. actually playing their stuff um <clears throat> having said that it happened relatively quickly because it, something clicked with people i think and it was different um and yet um it was different in a in a familiar package in terms of it was rock music but made people kind of look at it and go what? you know I, I can tap my foot but you know something a little you know, um and we did that on purpose. I mean, we, we purposely didn't, didn't uh, two things actually from the beginning were uh, it had to sound different, but not alienating the audience. Uh, so they had to think too much about it, but it had to be refreshing and, and you, but within that toe tapping thing, and it had to have really cool rhythms because that will get people no matter what. You can do a seven four and if you got, you can get people tapping their foot to a seven four and they don't know it's in seven four, but as long as you keep their body clock going, and and second of all, uh, nothing when you're creating it in the writing stage, nothing can remind anybody in the band. Uh, if you're doing a, like a sit around writing session, nothing can remind someone of something else, even remotely. So if we're working on something, we and and you know we get to a certain section of the song, we're trying out this new section, and we stop, and someone, if anybody, were to turn around and go, oh yeah, that's got a real such and such feel to it, or oh yeah, that reminds me a little bit of, and we go what? <laughs> which, 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 which song? What are you talking about? And then it'll be described and go, oh, okay, well, we can't use that. 
Uh, and, and, and I'll tell you right now that we, I mean, so finicky about it that had we left it in there, nobody, nobody would have said that sounds like such and such. But it reminded one of us or two of us of something else. So we couldn't use it because maybe because we, every time we played it, we probably start thinking about that or whatever. But that was that was a, a golden rule. If, if 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 any passages reminded anybody in the band of somebody else, we wouldn't use it. Wow. So when you were working and doing the bar circuit in Toronto, let's say the Gasworks and whatever those, a bunch it was of, great. It yeah. was a great time. It was a great time. Really okay. Was. So what was the dream at that point? Was it just to continue doing this? Was it no? We we're going to record an album tour the world well yeah you i think you 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 yeah i mean you definitely if you if you're thinking the right way you put a band together you're going to play the circuit if nothing else to get really uh, well rehearsed like a really well-oiled machine and really good at what you're doing and refining the songs with an end goal being you take these songs into the studio eventually um because there's nothing like you know honing those songs live before you get into the studio that, that that's this you see i believe that this is why a lot of bands first and second albums maybe as much as the third but um are sometimes i don't want to say their best works but there's an energy that, that you can't you can't replicate later because you've been working on these songs and and you've been living these songs. You've been been playing them like over and over again live, and you just and they're starting to breathe and they're starting to take on their 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 life of their own. And you've had the luxury of learning uh, of doing that because of the the club circuit, and you haven't got an album out yet. Um, so when you get to do those songs finally with, with any luck, you get a deal. You get in the studio and you get to record those songs, and they're ready. You know, you you have to do very little except the icing on the cake and the little effects here and there. But you know these songs. Um, the same thing happened with us with Worlds Apart. Um, but that's a whole different, slightly different story. But I, I do believe that. I think the early albums from from bands, it's it's partly from playing those songs over and over, and you just played them not to death, but you re they're they're very well rehearsed, and there's a, an excitement and there's a passion about that very first album. Uh, it's an intangible that you you know it's just it's on there, so yeah. But I mean, I mean if you if you're, you're yeah you're doing the club circuit you're you're definitely looking you know we got to record and then once we record it'll be bigger tours and then more albums and yeah. I mean. But very few bands get to that point though. No, I know, and and um, I have to. We are ex incredibly lucky, and I will always say that. I mean, who's to say? Because you're relying on on the public ultimately you know a little bit on the record companies and the promo and this and that but ultimately it's up to the people that are listening to it so um sometimes right place right time um sometimes the kind of song that comes out is just the right time for that song there's a lot of hits that have happened in in the years that that i firmly believe uh that if it was released in a different time even a different week or month or a year later it wouldn't click that particular song had to be played or had to be uh, on the radio and accessible at that time because people were in that mood. You can't predict it. Um, but the same song, eight months later, that, oh, that's the time. That's the time for this particular track. And I don't know, again, we were really lucky. Um, we were doing something right and the timing was right for people. We got a lot of people scratching their heads come, <laughs> coming to see us in the clubs. You know, like, what is this? The funniest one we played, um, sorry, but we we did a, did a three bill, a three act bill, and it was uh, Quiet Riot, 
and girls' school, and we were in the middle. And we were in the middle. So girls' school went on, and then we came on, and then came uh, quite right. So when we hit the stage, there was a lot of what? Um, there was no booing, you know, not like ah, oh, get off the stage. You said they were. I don't want to say confused, but <laughs> because you see, it's although it's it was uh, semi-intricate compared to what they were, you know, been used to listening to. It was still accessible. You could still tap your foot to it. I mean, there was still really cool rhythmic elements to it, and and they were structured songs. I mean, granted, there were you know within a certain section of the song, this you know musical chaos, <laughs> organized chaos going on. But it would always come back to the one, and then onto the next section. So, yeah. So that I that's I don't think we were ever booed per se. Did Saga ever reach that point of the the three friends? idea of progressive rock to you you would have to ask the fans i mean did we reach our our oh no more like your idea of what when you heard the gentle giant album and said i want to do that i don't know well i uh, well i don't know i want to do that but i wanted to be uh, how can i put it i i think a light bulb went on for me and i what i wanted was to be able to be able to create that way and to create something that had that kind of impact on me not necessarily replicate what they did Uh, certainly the certainly the influence was there and people will tell you this uh, to this day they'll they'll hear you know elements of gentle giant throughout uh, our music here and there you'll hear certain counterpoints oh that's a little gentle gianty you know whatever and those moments we've let slide uh, because it's kind of we've done almost tongue in cheek on purpose as an almost homage or whatever, just a little you know thank you or whatever you however you want to look at it. I think the the, the main one that you would get comments like that would apply to a song called Giant, and Giant uh, evokes those kind of hey that's that's you know that reminds me of Giant that's something Giant would do that kind of thing. So, um, but certainly not at the time going. I want to you know do that specifically, but right, I right. want to, I want to have that effect that it just had on me. Um, however, the, however I can achieve that. So. so when you come out of the gate and you have the success with the first four or five albums, mm. and you're touring all over the states. You're opening up for Jethro Tull. You're you're touring Europe. I mean, good times, good times. <laughs> <laughs> but but at the same time, you're producing an album a year, I guess. Back then, right? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I think the longest was uh, maybe one and a half years, but pretty much we were trying to do one. So it's. I mean, it was it wasn't a it wasn't a business plan, but it just worked out. It was like tour album tour album. You tour that album. Right. When you're finished doing that tour, you can't wait to make some new music, and then you can't wait to take that music on the road. So it was just like it was a cycle, and there was a rhythm to it, and it felt good. It felt. It wasn't like, but it wasn't at the same time. It always felt fresh when we went to do the next album because we were already writing something in our heads in preparation thinking right. that once we once we finish this tour I got some great ideas for the next one that kind of thing so there was a momentum and a creative momentum as well uh, it wasn't like guys you gotta you know you're on the clock as soon as you finish this tour you better have an album ready because we gotta get this thing going we oh, so wanted, you never had that pressure well I'm sure it was there but we never felt it in terms of that. if, if there was pressure it was self-imposed um because we wanted to anyway. It wasn't like we get off a tour and we go, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's sit around for a month or so, or you know, and then we'll, we'll start thinking about the next one. No, we wanted to. We couldn't wait to, you know, you get halfway through a tour, you can't wait to make a new record, and then you get halfway through the new, the new record, and you can't wait to get that music on the road and, and play it live for people, you know. So, um, 
like I say, it was a positive creative momentum that that uh, allowed us to deliver on time in terms of the you know the the uh, any deadlines that the record companies had. And I mean, rightly so, because they know the market, so they they know the the time slots, which are the best times to release albums and that kind of thing. So you want to ride that. You want to take advantage of that um, of that marketing tool, obviously. Uh, just if nothing else, to reach as many people as possible, because a lot of albums or great songs can get lost by the wayside. Uh, as I was saying earlier, they're released at the wrong time. Um, some people find out that they either become underground hits or they fly under the radar, but if you are with a major label at the time and things are going very well, um, you want to try and stay with the, the way that machine is running and it knows when things should, should be out there and, and when people are, are, are ready for it and that kind of thing. So uh, we were very fortunate in that respect. The timing uh, was very good each time. So we, we talked about Germany and how yeah. massive you are there. <laughs> home away from home. <laughs> yeah, and you lived there, I guess, I for did. a little while. I did, I did there for, in um, the 90s. Yeah. Does that does does that surprise you? Like I don't know how that. I always find that curious that you know you would have certain success in Canada, certain success in the U.S. Yeah, and then you mm -hmm. have this bigger success in Puerto Rico and Germany and Scandinavian countries. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it's nothing you can obviously plan um, right. unless you unless you have a game plan. You say we're going for that market. We're going to design the music specifically for that market, and you go for it, and that's what happens. The other ones follow along, hopefully. But no, uh, otherwise you just start out. You put out your album. You cross your fingers, um, and you hope that you. I mean, the greatest hope at the beginning is it's going to take off in your home country. You would think. Um, the way it turned out, I mean, things were going okay. You know, they're getting airplay at home. And the first album found its way over to uh, Germany on an import. And uh, kind of the same thing happened to Puerto Rico with an import at a radio station. And um, with the case of Germany, uh, started so m selling so many copies on import that the record company, Polydor at the time, said, wait a minute, these guys are selling like thousands and thousands of, of imports. We should, we should really get a piece of this. Uh, and that's how we got the first deal in Germany. Uh, Puerto Rico, um, slightly different thing because <laughs> you can release an album down there and sell, you know, 500 and have 17,000 people come to the show. <laughs> Because, you know, everybody makes a cassette, you know, the whole family comes over and, you know, 15, 20 people make a cassette of the, of the albums. But we were, it was almost godlike down there at one point, it was crazy. We went down there to play, I mean, first of all, they said we're going down to play a, a, a show in Puerto Rico, and where the hell is Puerto Rico? Well, it's in the Caribbean. The Caribbean? All right, we're going down to the Caribbean, okay. Um, we got down there and it was like, what? Uh, there was an ad for the show on TV every 10 minutes. Uh, the radio station was playing the music constantly, and the ad for the show was on about six times an hour. It was just saga, 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 saga. I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, I, I was sitting on the beach one, one day, uh, a couple of days before the gig, because we, we turned it into a holiday uh, and a gig at the same time. We're sitting on the beach, and I heard this, this really familiar music, and it's getting closer. I'm like looking around beautiful you know Caribbean setting I'm like oh. and I look down and I see this guy he's getting louder and it's this guy walking towards me and he's he's got a huge boom box in his shoulder and he's bopping along and I'm like what and as I got closer I realized it was Humble Stance from the first album and I thought 
what's wrong with this picture? It was like, <laughs> this this music on a beach through a ghetto blaster. I'm like, what? Um, then it made sense that we, we had like really embedded ourselves, or the music had uh, really embedded it there. Um, in the case of Germany, uh, yeah, it just it just it just grew really really quickly, and and they're very faithful as fans over there. They when they like something, they really latch onto it. But it really was a matter of um, of, of touring and and being out in the public and and working, you know, not working the record, but going where the audience is. And you look at the numbers, and we were selling just so many records over there. They they got us on the, all the TV shows at the beginning, all the big ones, and and the live thing. Um, the live was very important. That we did a TV show, uh, rock popping concert, um, in in Germany at the time and in the very beginning. And that cemented our reputation for the live aspect of things, you know, live show. And I'm not talking theatrics and that and like effects and all the, you know, that comes along. But I think the energy of the band is five guys on stage performing, performing with passion and really having a good time uh, and, and being noted for a, a band that, that, you know, when you go see them, that's what you get. Um, so we had a very good reputation for life from the very beginning. Um, but and really, continue to uh, continue to, and 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 it's because of those early days. But it, it is because we have fun on stage. It's just you know. But uh, yeah, it, it's a matter of going where your audience was, and that's where it was at the beginning, and grew from there. So you just pounded. There was a time uh, after Worlds Apart, and um, you know, wind him up and on the loose for all, all over the radio in the states. That's when we did that that run of shows, of tours. Actually, um, I mean, it was one after the other. It was. Uh, Pat Benatar, uh, you know Jethro Tull, Eddie Money, Billy Squire, um, and, and we finish one and then jump on the next one. Finish one and get on the next one. Um, so yeah, we were cultivating the states at that point. And then you know people go, well, whatever happened to your popularity? It's nearly as popular in the states. We stopped touring there. We stopped going there. Um, the 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 record company support. It, it's not a blame thing. Uh, things change. You know, dynamics change and companies change and that. But. Um, the 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 gung ho support wasn't quite what it was there. Uh, with worlds apart, it started to wane more, and rather than you know try and make up the slack and 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 pound America, which is a huge place to to try and pound uh, on your own, uh, or you know with with not quite as much help as you had before, you go where you where where you know that it's a surefire you know where people really do want to hear you, and 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 that's where the market is is really happening. Um, with the Canadian thing, uh, again, and the number of shows there, we, 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 we concentrated so much on where the audience was at the time, uh, that being starting with Germany and then branching out in, in Scandinavia. Um, I do remember being, uh, <laughs> I believe we were in the middle of a, a German tour, certainly a European tour, and found out that Q107 had a, had a poll where you, <laughs> you phone-in poll to vote for your favorite Canadian band. And I believe it was live on the air. Someone called in and said, "I would like to nominate Saga." And the DJ said, "Ah, uh, oh, yeah, cool band. I, I I really like them too. But this is for your favorite Canadian band, and they're from Germany, so they 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 don't qualify." I'm like, "What? You know, you find this out in the middle of a German tour." I said, "Okay, there's something wrong here." We came home and promptly did a bunch of Canadian shows. We are Canadian, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I mean, just. That's just a demonstration of, uh, you know, a graphic example of, of uh, you know, how much time we were spending over there. You know, when pe when you play a song by the by the band, you follow it up by they're on tour in Germany right now, or Germany fans and blah blah blah. You know, it's subliminal. So. 
No, we're not, we're not Germany. What's the greatest thing you learned from that? The the success that you attained. <laughs> I do it all exactly the same. Um, I don't know. I guess uh, patience. <laughs> patience is a big one. Uh, you got to keep your head. You have to keep things in perspective. It's it's really easy to get caught up in all the, you know. You guys are great, man. Your guests are incredible. Um, you you have to you have to remember that that uh, you know it's 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 tough getting up there, but but the the the, the fall back down is uh, it's a lot rougher. Um, <laughs> you just got to be you got to be patient with yourself. You got to be you got to keep your head. You got to try as you know stay as as focused and as centered and as humble as you possibly can, and just stick with it. You got to just. You gotta remember what's what's important, and what's important is the music, and the music comes first. And you gotta remember that, and all this other stuff that comes along with it, good or bad, that's extraneous. You know, uh, one feeds the other eventually, with any luck. But you get you gotta remember that first day that you walked into the studio with the first album. You gotta remember that feeling of of creating a song from scratch and going, "Wow, that sounds great." Um, Did you ever lose that? No, no. Never, um, you know, there's some songs I prefer over other ones and that kind of thing, but never, I mean, I never lost that, that excitement of it and the feeling of, of I guess, accomplishment. It's, it's just, you know, I think the day you do, and also live, performing live, uh, never lost the passion for that. I, I'm sure I never will. They'll have to wheel me, <laughs> have to pry the microphone from my cold, dead hand. Um, <laughs> not literally, but, you know, I think either when it comes to either creating new music or, or presenting it live, the day that it turns into a job is the day you should really start checking yourself and think, you know what, if I'm just walking on stage and I'm saying the same thing every night in between the songs and I'm saying good evening wherever I am and sometimes forgetting which city because I really don't give a damn anymore and going through the motions, hang it up because that ain't fair to you, that's not fair to the audience and they're going to feel it and you're going to have this horrible slow decline into the holiday in circuit if you don't watch yourself and i'd rather go out i've always said this i'd rather go out in the top of my game than go out that way uh but like i say it's not fair to you and it's not fair to the audience it's the same thing with making music if you the minute you make a record just for the sake of it and to pay the bills or or uh, contractual obligation it sounds like that and the audience knows the difference so you might as well not make it because the memory you're going to leave them is not a good one. You don't want to leave them with that if you're going to go anywhere. So you did a solo album called Clear, and you, you referred to another solo album. What what do you hope to attain or achieve with your that's solo a vanity, work? That's a total vanity project. <laughs> you know what it is? It's it's something you want to get off your chest. Um, um, I looked at it as a way of of, of creating something outside the parameters of, of Saga. Um, although the parameters are extremely wide that there is a certain air, you know, uh, a set of them, they're, they're, they're variable and you can push it a little bit, but there are certain things that you just don't do and do do. Um, and when you work on something solo, that doesn't exist and you're allowed to do anything you want. Um, is it going to sound a little bit like the band you're, you're in? Of course it is, because you're bringing your one-fifth or whatever percentage that you add to that, um, that's coming with you, because that's there naturally. So of course, you know, it's going to sound a little bit like the band. Um, 
but everything else you can you can mess with the style you can mess with a little bit and anything you'd wanted to try vocally before that wasn't appropriate you can try now so the sense of freedom was wonderful and uh the sense of um no time limit no no pressures from that from that point of view were phenomenal too because you know no one's telling me when this thing's got to be done i mean it took nine years to make it <laughs> i know i mean to be fair i mean a lot of that was so busy with the band that you, you know you have to find time in between either tours or making a saga record and that so whenever i had free time you know i do like four weeks of recording or whatever so it was like a little bit here a little bit there but that was fun too because each time you took a break from me you could walk back in and hear it fresh and things that you thought were working maybe they weren't uh or vice versa so um, yeah, it took a while, but it, 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 that's pretty. When I say vanity project, it's like, of course, you, because it's you and you're doing it yourself. But you're more curious than anything. I know I was more curious of what would come out in the end. And uh, you know, talk about being fussy. Though I thought the band was fussy about <laughs> our records. I mean, yeah. but it was it was great. The latest project you're involved in also is a <laughs> band called Project. Project. Mm -hmm. So it's. Also coming around, it is full it circle. Is. It Tell is me a little bit about that. Well, it, it's it's coming. The project is is kind of coming full circle in the sense of of two things. I mean, it's um, <laughs> almost being a cover band again, and and being a prog like out now prog classic. I mean, this is like seventy stuff. Um, so, project came. I I was approached by Jonathan Mover, uh, saying that he had this this idea for this. Uh, thing he hadn't called it project yet, and explained it to me and uh, told me who the players were were going to be and would I be interested? And I thought about it and I thought, you know what? If this is done right and with the right players, this could be really really cool. Um, but you know, it really depended on the the material we were going to play and uh, the chemistry of the band and all of that. Um, I mean, when I found out who was playing in the band and and the pedigree and then and, and everyone's uh, you know interest in the in the project. I thought this is you know if we do this right this is going to be really really cool and it's it, it's not a um, although we're we're doing uh, specifically um, you know seventies early eighties seventies uh, Prague uh, early Genesis um, early Yes uh, King Crimson uh, ELP um, it's not a it's not a cover band per se it's more of, of um, an homage really it's, it's our nod to these great songs and artists of our genre of our time you know it's like we're just uh, these are fellow uh, musicians you know most of them around our age maybe a bit older whatever but um, our way of saying these are great songs you know I wish I'd written that uh, you know that kind of thing or I've always wanted to sing that song there's a couple of songs that I've always been dying to sing one of them is Squonk from Genesis um, yeah, and it, and it's just like I say, it's not a cover band per se, it, and it's not a tribute band. Uh, tribute bands are usually they do one, you know, a Bon Jovi tribute band or right. an ACDC tribute band. This is a, a prog nod or a nod to prog. It's it's a genre tribute more than anything, um, but it's exciting. It, it really is. And I and I got down there for rehearsals in L.A. the first time and. And I thought, well, this is cool. This is really cool. Uh, it's funny because I sometimes think of Saga as not really a, a prog band per se. I had the longest time, but you had to call it something. So <laughs> prog was, it, 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 in the beginning, it was like, you know, let's call it medieval funk. I don't know. 
Um, but but it, you see, we've, we're in that gray area. You're not quite in, mm-hmm. not quite rocky enough for a rock band audience, and not quite proggy for the you know the more meandering you know those kind of uh, prog era uh, fans. So we've got a little bit of both. So we're in this this sort of particular genre that I guess we created in the middle or whatever. Um, so uh, you know, having a chance to do these songs. Uh, it was great because I, like I said, I got to do, uh, I got to sing uh, Genesis songs that I wanted to try, and 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 I was a little worried that some of the songs again wouldn't suit my voice, but but it seems that either Jonathan really thought about it when he was choosing the songs, or it just worked out that that I can, you know, bring. And, and then and the, the thing about not being a tribute band per se, you're not <clears throat> usually with tribute bands, uh, especially with the singer, you want them to sound pretty similar to the guy. I mean, if you do a Van Halen tribute band, you want a Roth or Hager sounding guy mm-hmm. because the whole evening is going to be their music. Um, doing this, I'm bringing myself to these songs. I'm singing the melodies, but I'm singing myself to the, uh, you know, bringing myself and, and uh, it's cool. It's, uh, you know, it's a little pretty bit of musical band. freedom. Yeah, it, it, they're, they're good players, man. They really are. Uh, I, I sit there watching them and I'm like, wow. Thanks for choosing me. Thanks for choosing me, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so he just called you out of the blue. <laughs> he did. He was speaking to someone who's uh, very entrenched uh, up in the East Coast. Uh, um, I think the Boston area or New York, Jersey area um, in the prog scene. And he was, he was saying, I'm, I'm putting this little project together. You ever thought, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm trying to find, thinking about who I could use to sing. And the, this guy said, well, it was Michael Sadler. And he says, no, I said, do you think he would want to do this? And I'm thinking, <laughs> really? <laughs> Again, you see, I, you know, half the time, and this is not false humility, it's half the time I'm surprised that other people around my age in the same genre, in the same business, know who I am. But of course, I, I, I've got to say, well, yeah, because we've released records and they, don't, they, they hear other bands as well. So, you know, it's not a, it shouldn't be so surprised, in other words. But, um, yeah, and he said, oh, I don't think he'd be interested. No, he says, I know him, I'll give him a call. <laughs> uh, so Jonathan just called me and said, would you? And I said, sure. And like I say, he mentioned Rio from Spock's Beard, who I'd known from from, uh, from before. Um, I knew uh, Matt Dorsey from uh, working with him and Dave Kersner. Um, so yeah, Jonathan and I was not familiar with, and, uh, Jason either. Uh, so that was a, a learning curve in terms of personalities. But what's really cool is from the first day of rehearsal, and this is a consideration when you're putting something new together, you know, four or five uh, people, um, you've got to take into consideration that if you're going to be you know, spending a lot of time with these human beings, that it might be kind of cool if you could get along, you know. Um, but the chemistry from the get-go was like we'd been together for a year or two and, and had already done gigs and this kind of thing. It clicked really quickly uh, we had a common love of the of the music and the titles and the songs we were going to uh, play the mutual respect was there there was no egos they were definitely checked at the door if you had one um, there was none of that and there was no you know one-upsmanship or any of this stuff there's just this mutual respect for everybody's uh, level of, of, of you know artistry as it were but um, it was great from the very beginning I, I would dying to play it live because uh, I think people will be surprised this is uh, yeah it's good stuff um, is it I know you've been with Saga for like uh, basically 40 years except over mine. a few years over. so <laughs> oh I see is it, okay, yeah. is it weird is it weird to be in a band situation that's not Saga 
Like, I know you played with other people, but this is kind of like a band, right? Well, you know what? I, I haven't really thought about it. Um, and I think, I think what makes it less of, of that, if it was going to exist, um, would be the fact that it is cover material, that it is we're playing other people's songs. If this was an original band, it would be different, I think, because mm. the, the, the mindset would be different. I'm, I'm now working and writing with other people. I think then it would be a different question and a different answer. Um, I would probably feel differently about it, and it would probably mess with me a little bit. Uh, yeah, if, if, if I do like separate my musical, my, my writing skills or, or talents or whatever, and split them in two, um, I think that would be difficult because I would find myself you know, coming up with something and thinking, should I save that for the band? For saga, or should I use this part for the new band, or you know? Um, but because there's no original at this point in time, I should say, um, then it's not really. Uh, no, it's it's like it truly feels like a side gig uh, mm. for the moment. It's it's something that we're we're doing um, when I well, certainly for me while I uh, when I can within the parameters of saga because saga will remain the priority for however long that is um, and any moment that I that I'm not busy with saga it will be with project for sure but but those parameters were set up from the get-go and and uh, you know Jonathan knew that from the beginning same with with anybody I mean uh, Jason has a Jason Bueller has a, 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 a you know a very very healthy solo career uh, as well so it works around his schedule my schedule and Rio's with Spock's beard so um, but yeah it's 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 truly something Outside of Saga, you know, when I'm not doing things, uh, either doing a, uh, an album or touring with Saga for now. But uh, we'll see what the future brings. I mean, um, we certainly talked about doing some original material for for a project. So, wow, it could be in our um, future. Yeah. Do you ever think what would happen if Tim never gave you that call to say, "Can you sing on this demo"? I, twenty twenty hindsight, man. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened if he'd not called. I, would I? Would it have taken longer for me to look in the mirror and go, you know what, that's not me? Uh, because it, because unless something had happened uh, to tell me otherwise, why would I have reconsidered going into music? Something would have probably eventually happened uh, to trigger me back in there. Because like I say, th this is me. Uh, it's obviously me. Um, and, and that guy wasn't. Although I could be that guy. No problem. You know, I could be that 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 convincing salesman or or whatever it was I was doing at the time and do it well, but um, certainly some, you know, something probably would have pulled me back had it not been Jim, um, sooner rather than later. You know, but uh, he just sped up the process. <laughs> well, thank God he did, and thank God yes, for all yes, those amazing yes. records that you guys produced. And thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking this time. It's a total pleasure. It's a great conversation, and uh, it's been a it's been a it's been an interesting adventure. It's over four decades, and I uh, and I, you know, I'd like to say I wouldn't change a thing, and 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 overall I wouldn't. There are little things here and there, but I mean, twenty twenty hindsight, I always say if you don't learn from your mistakes, you're a fool. You know, if you keep <laughs> doing the same thing and you know expecting a different result, then you know. But would I go back and change a couple of things, a couple of little tiny business things here and there, but. The approach musically, certainly not. You know, 
when we experimented, it was the right time to experiment. You know, when it was time to get down to what we were supposed to be doing, we got down to what we were supposed to be doing. Let's put it this way, 45 years later, we're doing something right. Well, it's, and, and that's huge, because not many bands last that long <laughs> I know, I and know. continue <laughs> to do new albums and, yeah. and play and yeah. have the we're fan still, base that you have. Still having fun, that's the, uh, that's the problem here, we're still having fun. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure.